0: This week in our New City Catechism devotional, we are going to continue on in considering our relationship to the law. Uh, last, last week we asked the question, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? And we use that as an opportunity to think about our own sinfulness. And as we, we grow in an awareness of our sinfulness and as we grow in an awareness of the holiness of God, we, we grow in deeper appreciation for what Christ has accomplished when he died in our place and took our punishment upon himself, offering us that free gift of life. This week, uh, we're going to look at question 14, which says, did God create us unable to keep his law? The answer, no, but because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, all of creation is fallen we are all born in sin and guilt, corrupt in our nature, and unable to keep God's law. Romans 5.12 then it's the passage they use, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. What I'd like to do this week is, is think about this kind of from two perspectives. Um, they're interconnected, but two ideas. First question, what does this reality mean for our spiritual growth? The reality that no one, uh, or that we weren't created unable to keep the law, but because of sin and our fallen nature, we cannot keep the law. So what does, what does that mean for our spiritual growth? And then what does that mean in terms of our outreach and evangelism? How how does that impact and shape then how we share the gospel with those who do not know Christ. So that's those are kind of the two avenues through which I want to think about this: our own spiritual growth and and our ability to do what God has called us to do, in light of the reality of our fallen nature. And then second, what does that mean for our outreach and evangelism? And I want to start that with looking at John chapter 15. I'll read a, a portion of this. This is John 15, starting in verse one. It says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser." This is Christ talking, and he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, in order that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this section goes on, but I I think that's enough for our consideration today. Uh, Christ is talking about this idea that we find our ability to bear fruit in our attachment to the vine. We, we must abide in the vine, because apart from the vine, we can't do anything. As he says in verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it is unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So as we think about, in connection to our question, were we created unable to keep the law? No, but because of our fallen nature, we cannot keep the law. Um, Christ is reminding that a, that a branch cannot bear fruit, right? A, a branch separated from the tree, separated from the vine, can't bear fruit. In the same way we, separated from Christ, cannot bear fruit. It says we cannot do that unless we abide in Christ. Verse 5 kind of punctuates that. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So, He's been using this analogy, and now he's saying, hey, this is who we are in this analogy. Christ is divine. We are the branches. And whoever abides in him and he in them, they it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, one commentator, Robert Mount, says it this way. Cut off from Christ by an unwillingness to abide, the professing Christian will be unable to produce fruit or, for that matter, do anything of spiritual consequences. Now, this is important because Robert Mounce looks at this passage, considers what's happening, and says, this isn't just about non-believers and believers and non- non-believers not being able to do anything. He's saying, the professing Christian who is unwilling to abide in Christ will be unable to produce fruit or, for that matter, do anything of spiritual consequence. And so if we, as believers, are not abiding regularly in Christ, our ability to do something of spiritual consequence, to use Robert Mounts's phrase, or, or to bear much fruit, as John writes, if we are not abiding in Christ, we cannot do that. And he says that, right? Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So he's talking to people who have been made clean and pure by the word of God. But he says to them, if they do not abide in him, they will not be able to bear fruit. And so our spiritual growth then and our ability to keep the law doesn't earn favor, doesn't save us, In fact, it is Christ's keeping of the law and us abiding in him that enables us to bear fruit and and do good work, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Another uh, commentator, Leon Morris, says it this way, in isolation from Christ, no spiritual achievement is possible. And so what all this means is if we want to do good works, if we want to live out the calling that we have, if we want to live out the truths of the gospel, we must be abiding in Christ because apart from him, we will not bear fruit. We have to be regularly, consistently abiding in Christ by spending time with him in his word, spending time with him in prayer spending time in the church, what Paul will call the body of Christ, right? We have to spend time with Christ through these various means, because apart from Christ, apart from abiding in the vine, we cannot do anything. And it's our good works that really lead to evangelism on on some level. Consider Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we are supposed to be people who bear fruit, the visible outworking of our relationship with Christ. And and people ought to be able to point to that fruit, point to that good work, and say something is going on here, right? As Matthew 5 puts it, let your light shine, let your good works show, let your fruit be known so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, that they may see your good works. And so we are not supposed to practice our relationship with Christ in private. It is not merely a personal thing. It has deeply personal implications, and God is absolutely a personal God who saves individuals and and, and interacts with them uniquely. But our personal faith has wide-reaching and more corporate implications. We are to let others see our good works, not that we may boast in what we have done, but that they might see us, and it points to God. And so, as we grow in our faith through abiding in Christ, we begin to bear fruit that the world sees and gives glory to God. Now, Just prior to this in Matthew, he talks about in the Beatitudes the reality of suffering and being persecuted for the sake of Christ. So just because we bear good fruit and God is using that to his glory and to his ends does not mean life will always be easy. Matthew acknowledges that just before this, but that does not change the fact that we are to bear fruit and that others will see that fruit and they will give glory to God in heaven. And this kind of leads naturally into our thinking about how does this question apply to evangelism and outreach. And one of the things that's interesting to me as as a believer and I've experienced this myself is that I will get frustrated at the world for being worldly. Right as a believer I will look at it and say this doesn't make any sense. Why do they think this is a good idea? Why is this what's being upheld is something good and right, and I get frustrated, I get angry at the world for being worldly. And I shouldn't be surprised that their framework, the, those who are not professing believers, who are not followers of Christ, I should not be surprised that their framework is different than mine, that what they deem as good and right and acceptable is not what I would call good and right and acceptable as I see God revealing these things in his word. And I think 1 Corinthians 2 can help unpack this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we should be heartbroken at the worldliness of the world, but we should not be surprised by it. And we, we ought to speak into those things, as Matthew 5 says, we should be salt and light in a dark world that needs the gospel, but we shouldn't be surprised by the darkness of that world. And so as we do good works, as we abide in Christ and are growing and we bear fruit and people see that fruit and give glory to God, and we let our light shine. We should not be surprised when we get pushback when people disagree because they won't be able to understand, the natural person doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so what does that mean then for our evangelism? How, how do we go about proclaiming the gospel to those who are separated from God, who are not able to do good works as Christ talks about in, in John 15, or rather cannot do anything of sp- spiritual achievement, and are people who don't understand the things of God. There is a book that I found really helpful when it comes to evangelism. It's called Evangelism in a Skeptical World by Sam Chan. I would commend it to you. But in this book, he talks about evangelism and gives kind of six strategies that I, I think are helpful as we think about where people are at when it comes to faith. And we have to acknowledge that people will be at different points in in their journey. They may may be antagonistic towards Christianity and God and the Bible, or they may be seeking, trying to understand. Um, But regardless of where people are at, I think Sam Chan's method is helpful, and I think it it comes from Scripture. Uh, So first, he says, get our friends to become their friends. He talks about this idea that um, if you go into a group of even 10 people, nine people believe one way and one person believes another way, it can be hard for that one person to speak up. And so he talks about get our friends to become their friends and, and kind of flip that equation where we have nine people who believe the gospel and are living the truth of the word and let that one person just see that reality. And so as we invite them out of the workspace into our lives, we have them meet the people that we know and love and care about and interact with regularly. And as they see us interacting in those ways, it's one of the practical ways that we can live out Matthew 5 by letting our good works shine before others. So we invite them to to be a part of our communities. Strategy two, we, we go to them even before they come to us. We shouldn't just expect that they will show up in those spaces. We have to go to them and meet them where they're at. Christ did this all the time, right? It says he went and ate with sinners and tax collectors. He went to them. Now, encourage them always to to step out of that life. He would forgive. He would meet them where they're at, and then he would say, go and sin no more. And so he meets them where they are, but don't leave them there. And so we, we go to people where they're at understanding that their framework is different, understanding the things that they celebrate will not be things that we celebrate, and the things that they disagree with may be things that we uphold as ideals and morals of of Scripture. Uh, But we go to them. And then Sam Chan uses a third strategy he calls coffee, dinner, and gospel, which is kind of this spending a few few times with someone over coffee. Uh, It's not very intimidating. It's a public space. They're free to go whenever they want to go. You're going to get coffee with someone usually lasts for 30 to 30 minutes to an hour. And so it's not very intimidating. And then dinner, uh, dinner is, is, is more personal. You invite them into your home and not in a public space, but in that private space, usually that's where deeper conversations come out. People aren't going to talk about their, their values and all that matters to them over coffee. If you have different worldviews and different frameworks but over over dinner in your home that might change and it's in that space that we begin to share the gospel story um and as we share we also listen to their story because the the point of evangelism is not to just give them the gospel and and kind of shove it down their throats. We listen to them. Where are they at? Where, where does Christ meet them? As we hear their story, we can, we can speak into their story with the truths of scripture. And so it's not just preparing our gospel presentation and laying it out and say, okay, do you believe? But it's an interaction. It's, it's growing in relationship with another person. And as we hear their story, we can speak to how Christ meets them where they're at in the midst of their story. And strategy five is to tell your own story as a story, to, to give your own testimony, not a not as a, a list of gospel truths, but as, hey, here's what God has done in my life. Here's the story of how God met me. And then he he his last strategy, his closing is tell a story about Jesus, because that's who this is all about, to, to come into relationship with Christ. And so we we kind of walk with them, we meet them where they're at. We invite them into our space, into our lives. We tell them our story. We listen to their story. And then we point them, or rather throughout this whole process, we point them to Christ. As we think about this, did God create us unable to keep the law? No, we were created to keep the law. But because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, all creation is fallen. So as we evangelize, we are talking to people who are in darkness as Paul puts it, or dead in the trespasses in which, in which they are walking, right? And so we're meeting them in that space and inviting them into what God is doing, what God has done through Christ. And so we should not be surprised when in our evangelism, in our growth, as we talk about spiritual things, people are confused and push back. And so we explain, we, we dig in, and we meet them where they're at in order that we can point them to Christ who meets us in our own brokenness, in our own sinfulness, who, though we were unable to keep the law, entered in and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And that is the story that we are inviting people into, people who are lost, who are broken, who are in need of a Savior, even though they don't see it. And so I I encourage us to, to think and pray, Who? Who are those people in our lives who need the gospel? How can we invite them into our lives? How can we invite them into what God is doing in and through us? And then even a step before that, are we abiding in Christ? Are we are we even in a place where we are growing and, and bearing fruit so that people can see that and know something is different, that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? That brings us again back to the beauty of the gospel, that it's not about us and our performance, but it's about Christ and what he has done, who he is as Lord and Savior and King over all.